Um, like Bailey said, we just are coming off of um, our annual pastors' conference that we go to. We do that um, in February each year. That's turned into an annual thing um, over the last three or four years. And uh, honestly, as a staff, it's one of the highlights um, of our year. Uh, for those of you who don't know, our church is part of a network of other churches, uh, and we partner together to essentially host seminaries. That a, we partner together in a singular seminary, but it's, it's at each of the campuses, um, and it's called the Expositor Seminary. And we partner in training men, um, but more than that, it's, just, it's a fraternal of, of like-minded churches. And uh, I obviously went there. I came to this church to go to Expositors. And um, in God's kind providence, uh, he put me on staff here. So I'm thrilled, thrilled by that. wasn't looking for that. I wasn't expecting that, but um, that's how it happened. And over the years, that network has grown and um, it's deepened. Those friendships have deepened among those men. And uh, so we're just we're coming off of, of a sweet last few days together. Uh, all of our pastors, elders were down there. All of our TES students were down there. Um, even a few guys that were looking to, to come to TES were down there. TES, again, if you're new, stands for The Expositor Seminary. Um, sorry, we use acronyms all the time. And they all start with T, which is a challenge. Um, so, yeah, we had a great, we had a great time. Uh, Rich and Christy, are, uh, they kind of dovetailed that with some, some time with, their, uh, with Rich's parents, who are living in Florida right now. So they stayed down there. That's where he is. He and Christy are at. Um, over for the next few days, um, spending some good quality time with Rich's family, and uh, so we're we're back here. And really, the the conference. This isn't part of my notes, so don't don't think this is part of my intro. Don't start my time yet, okay? Um, the conference was very sweet. All the audio is online. Not, I mean, it, it's worth anybody to listen. Anybody can listen to it. Churchman.org is the name of the website, and. Um, but the, the theme of the conference was really how to, uh, how to finish well. And it was very sobering because it was, you kind of put some teeth on it, how to finish well in light of what's likely coming very soon down the, down the pipeline. Um, in our culture, hostility toward Christianity, um, particularly toward pastors. And really the need to maintain... Um, close biblical friendships with, with one another in, in the ministry. And so the, one of the purposes of the conference is to maintain that sort of fraternal feel. And I think if I, walk away, if I walked away from anything uh, from that conference, it was um, a, a profound sense of these men's, their, their love for one another. Um, and that's, I mean, that's rare at a pastor's conference, right? So uh, you typically go to these conferences, and everybody's sort of looking over their shoulder, comparing their ministry to the next guys. And uh, there's a lot of envy and selfish ambition that's kind of under the, under the surface. And there was, I mean, I'm sure that was happening in the hearts of some people, and we were working on that, right? But the overall tenor of that, of that conference was um, just love. Everybody, all the pastors that we talked to, just how can we serve you? What's going on in your ministries? How can we be praying for you? So um, just a sweet, sweet time. So I am... We left very early this morning, so if I start drooling, forgive me. Um, but inwardly, outwardly I'm tired. Inwardly I am very refreshed. So uh, we, we had a sweet time. All right, if you would, uh, open your Bibles to 1 John. 
And um, we're going to get back into this study. Uh, tonight's going to be a little bit different because um, it's going to be more of an applicational message. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But we're going to start, start in 1 John and then we'll launch from, from there. Um, really, that, that conference was kind of a good segue about the centrality of love, the importance of love. Uh, I've been experiencing that this week. We experience this every Lord's Day when we come together. We experience it on Thursday nights when we come together here. Um, we love each other. And that's very, very important for John. Uh, we looked at, we've been looking at this in depth for the last three or four weeks. Um, John's told us to love each other, I think about seven times in chapters three and four. When you, when you combo all that together, he's clearly trying to make a point, and he's showing us the, the priority of love. And we ended last week with John's final command for us to love, love each other, with that final command in the letter down in chapter 4, verse 21. He ends that paragraph, remember, by saying, And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if we step back, we remember what John's been teaching us, that, that we need to understand this, the love of God that has been shown to us in Christ. And as we are tenderized by that love, his intention for us is to bend that love out um, toward each other. And as we do that, as we understand his love, as we come to know and to believe it in the gospel, and as we learn to live like that in life right here in this hostile world, we're going to grow in our assurance and our confidence. Um, our prayers are going to be answered. Lots of, lots of really good fruit is going to be produced. And so, John's told us to love, he's hammered that again and again, but we've also seen how John doesn't just tell us to love, but he also motivates us to love. So, do you guys remember that? It was like two or three sermons worth of motivations. So, uh, there, were, there were a lot there. John helps us see how radically and freely God has loved us in Christ. And he's told us that God expects us to learn to love like that. Like, that's his expectation. We've seen that God's love is perfected, or we could say God's God's love, it reaches its climax when it passes through us and then out to others. Say it differently. He's loved us, and that doesn't terminate. He's given us his love to show it, to demonstrate it. And that's when his love, John says, is perfected. But what's really interesting, at least to me, about this letter is that John doesn't really practically flesh out what this love looks like. You know what I'm saying? He just, over and over, tells us to love. He assumes that his audience, this church, he assumes they know what it should look like. And probably because he's taught them before, he has modeled it for them before, he clearly knows this church well. So what John emphasizes in this letter is that they need to to go on loving each other And in particular, they need to to be able to recognize the false teachers, at least in part, by their their lack of love, their lack of meeting needs. And that's really the only practical instruction that John provides in this letter. That's really the only time he fleshes out love um, in this this letter, is over in chapter 3, verse 17. We've already looked at that, but just, again, for review, just check this out. John says, whoever has the world's goods, this is chapter 3, verse 17, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So, practical application of the love command, John says, meeting needs. And he says, how, if, you, if you're saying you're going to have God's love, 
and you are willing to close your heart off to your brother who's in need, then you don't really have God's love abiding in you. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to show them that these false teachers who are running around claiming to have revelation from God, and they're not, they don't love each other, they don't love the saints, they're, 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 they love the world, actually, and so they hoard their resources, they don't share. So John's saying they, they don't have the love of God. That's how you, that's how you can tell, because they don't love his people. And that's really the only practical application, which is interesting to me, it's the only practical application of the love command in this letter. But our context is a little bit different than John's original context, right? We're, we're, we're different. We're Timberlake Baptists, living in the 21st century. And since our, our context is, is different here in Boundless, I want to take tonight and show you how the rest of the New Testament puts shoe leather on this command to love. What I mean is I, just, I, want, to begin, I want to begin to show you how love is fleshed out, how it's applied. The New Testament connects these dots for us. And I say begin, I emphasize that we're only beginning this process because um, really in one sense, all of our obedience to God could be described as love, right? It's either love, the love of God or the love of man. And we definitely don't have time to flesh out all the ways the Bible shows us how to love. But tonight, I just want to get us started. Not that you don't know these things, but I want to help you connect these dots and see how love is, is applied and fleshed out right here in the context of the church. So that's the purpose of tonight's message. You can think of it more as a synthesis, or at least a start toward a synthesis. A synthesis of what love looks like in the church. So I'm calling tonight's message, as you can see, love fleshed out. And we're going to springboard from 1 John 4.21, this command. So he's given us the command to love, so we need to, need to map this out. What does this look like? And like I said, um, in Scripture, love is really the chief virtue, right? So it sums up everything else. It's the one that binds all the other virtues together. So really, any fruit in our life is a manifestation of love. But there are certain portions of Scripture that, that map this out explicitly, not just thematically. They make these connections very clearly. And so I, would, I just want to point those out kind of by, by way of introduction, and then we'll, we'll get into the synthesis. All right, let's read some of these together. Uh, the first very common um, passage, well, you tell me, what do you think? Where love is spelled out. What's a, what's a really common one? First Corinthians 13, yeah, that's right. The wedding passage, all right, so turn there. First Corinthians 13. We're just going to read it um, with just a, a min, some minimal comments, just so you know. We kind of joke, it's a wedding passage, definitely appropriate at weddings. But it's sandwiched in between these, these passages about gifts, gifts in the church, gifts being misapplied in the church, um, people pandering after these sort of extraordinary gifts like tongues and prophecy and, and things like that. And so sandwiched right in the middle here between these chapters on the gifts is this more excellent way. This thing that should be prioritized in the church above these sort of these, these extraordinary gifts. And Paul says it's the, it's the virtue of love. That should be prioritized. And that's really the context of what he's going to say here um, to this church, to the Corinthian church. So Paul wants to flesh this out. He talks about how love is, is so important, it's so central in those early, those first verses of chapter 13. 
And then he pivots in verse 4 and begins to, to apply it out. He, he describes what love looks like in real time. And he says in verse 4, you know this well, but love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. So that's important for the people that are envying the higher gifts in their minds, the tongues and others, and the other side of the equation, those people who have them and they're boasting in them. So love doesn't do that, doesn't envy, doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Literally, it doesn't seek its own. We'll talk about that. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I think that's talking about the return of Christ. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when he returns face to face, now I know in part but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So the centrality of love, he's making the same point that John makes in his letter. Love's central, and love's fleshed out. And he shows us what that, what that looks like. Alright, so that's a common one. We'll, we're we're going to look at these. What I'm going to do is I just want to read these, get them in our minds. And then I'm going to synthesize them kind of in some simple statements for us to, to kind of look at. So, 1 Corinthians 13, any other guesses at where love might be fleshed out? Okay, Ephesians 5, that would be a great place we could go. Yeah, it's Ephesians 5, just so you kind of understand what's going on there, is he gives you all these sort of body life commands, and it's, it climaxes in the command to love. And then it kind of goes back down the mountain with more commands. And so... It, it really, the way he structures that whole section is in, at the end of Ephesians, I think it's the start of Ephesians 5, 5, 1 and 2, is the command to love. And everything builds up to that, and everything kind of comes down from that, that mountain peak. Yeah, good. We won't read that one for sake of time. Somebody else is going to say something? Romans 12. Yeah, so let's go ahead and turn there. Let's read that one. And the reason I want, to, I want to go here is because this, this, is, this is an interesting text grammatically. Because the, the, the grammar of this text really underscores the point I'm trying to make. Really, I'm just telling you the point the biblical authors make. I'm not trying to make a point. I'm just trying to tell you their point. All right? So in chapter 12, verse 9, you understand that in, in Romans, he's turned the corner now in chapter 12. It's not that he hasn't given us any commands before chapter 12, but chapter 12 is kind of the big, the big shift to where if, if this stuff is true, and it is, all of chapters 1 through 11, then chapter 12, then in light of this, here's what we need, here's, what the church, here's how the church should respond to these mercies. Um, and he begins to tell us. So right here in verse 9, he starts and says, let love be genuine. So in this paragraph, obviously he leads with love, and there's really no verb in the original text. It's implied. And the command is like it's, it's an implied command. So let love is kind of how they translate it here. Let love be genuine. 
And then what's interesting is the rest of verse 9 all the way down to verse 13. So I don't know if your Bibles probably has that in a paragraph. So from verse 9 all the way to verse 13, after that main command of let love be genuine, the rest of these, they're translated in the ESV as commands, the rest of these commands are actually participles. And the only reason that's significant, I'm not going to get into a grammar lesson here, but in Greek, participles are dependent. They're dependent on a main verb. And he had a choice. The author had a choice. He could have chosen to put all of these in, a, in an imperatival tense form, just means like in commands. But he chose to put them in participles. Now the point is he's commanding us to do these things. It's not that he's not commanding us to do these things. It's not my point. The point here is he's showing they're dependent on the main verb of verse 9. Let love be genuine. So in other words, what we could say is everything he says from abhor what is evil all the way down to contribute to the needs of the saints in verse 13 and seek to show hospitality, all of that is supporting what is fleshing out what he means by let love be genuine. So let's read it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. I'll, I'll, I'll read it literally, okay? Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor, not being slothful in zeal, but being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and seeking to show hospitality. That's how that would flow. So it's all an outflow of, of love. It's giving you an idea of kind of where, where we're going tonight. Now, if you think 1 Corinthians 13, think passages like Romans 12, which shows these connections very explicitly. You could also think about really any of the, of, the, of the one another commands in Scripture. Or another way we could think about this. That's love fleshed out. And that's really where I'm going to take most of my cues tonight, even though it's going to be a, a synthesis. But any of those commands that, that, that say, hey, do this to one another, Right, So the obvious one that we're talking about, love one another, but forgive one another, uh, receive one another, welcome one another, be hospitable to one another. Anytime you see those sort of one another commands, what he's referring to is, is love manifested in the church, manifested among the people of God. So it's, it's applied. So that's really the third way that love would be fleshed out. You've got 1 Corinthians 13, Romans 12, and then any of these one another commands um, are pretty explicit. So that's just kind of intro into tonight. And so what I want to do tonight is really just synthesize all this and give you at least seven examples of how love is fleshed out in the New Testament. All right? And I say at least because there's a lot more. And if I can cover this quickly, I'll squeeze in some bonus ones for you. All right? What's that? Oh, I thought somebody said something. Okay, never mind. Cool. All right, love fleshed out. There we go. So, we love when we, number one, treat each other like family. All right, actually, hang on. Before we get there, let me say one more, a couple more things. All right. So, let me tell you how to use this sermon before we get into it. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to give you categories, kind of so if any of you are here in, this, in the dating series, um, what we've been doing these last few weeks. I'm trying to give you categories for things. I'm not trying to bury you with conviction. If the Lord's convicting you, amen. Um, but the goal of conviction is to, is to turn and grow out of that. That's what the Lord intends for you. 
what I'm trying to do tonight is just kind of set some categories for you. So we're going to talk about these things. Love is difficult. We've already looked at that. Love is a challenge. It cuts against the grain of our, of our, selfish, our selfishness, our desire to self-preserve. So the, these things will be um, challenging to us, and they should be. That's good. So, and I understand that you're on the front end of the Christian life, and you're not going to have all this stuff nailed down yet. So don't hear me saying, you know, you're, you're not a Christian if you're not doing this, right? Um, if you're not doing any of it, you have no love for Christ, you may not be a Christian. And we can talk about that. Christ wants you to come to himself and, and wants to teach you to do these things. But that's the point, all right? So I, I want you to use this sermon like a template, and I want you to use it as something that you can kind of come back to again and again, and not just this sermon, but these categories. Does that make sense? So you're not going to learn it all in, in one sermon. and You're not going to go home and apply all these things perfectly tomorrow. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, thank you. Because you have sensitive consciences. The more I spend time with you, the more I realize, uh, the more I realize this. So I, just, I want you to know this. Just, I, want, I want this to be an encouragement to you. And I just want to say before we get going that um, I see a lot of this stuff happening already in, in our body. In our, in our ministry in particular. Um, and so I want you to be encouraged as we, as we look at these. And, and really, like Paul says in, in Philippians 1.9, I want you, I want your, my prayer is that your love would abound more and more. It's kind of the language he uses. Philippians 1.9, your love would abound more and more. He says it again in 1 Thessalonians 3.9. So that's, that's the goal. Not that I don't think you're not loving, okay? So let's get into this. We love like the New Testament says to love, when we treat each other like family. All right? And I've listed, I'll list some texts on here. These are not the only texts. These are just some samples um, for you. So, again, we see this in Romans 12, 10. We looked at this um, a bit when we read it. And it's translated in the ESV, love one another with brotherly affection. In verse 10. And some translations we'll say, being devoted to one another in brotherly affection. So there's that devotion idea. We're committed to one another in brotherly affection. Now this, this flows out of our understanding that we really are family in Christ. Does that make sense? So we're supposed to treat each other like family because we are family in Christ. We are eternal family members. And we're going to be this way forever. And many times this, this bond in the church, you've probably experienced this, is, is closer than some of your relatives that are unbelievers, right? Even though you're related to them, flesh and blood, um, we are much closer to one another because of the bond of the Spirit and our, our love for Christ and our resonance with the truth. So he's, he's, he's telling us to love each other, think of each other like family, and love each other like that. So that's brotherly affection. That's kind of the idea. So we need to ask the question, well, how, do, how do good family relationships work? Like kind of what's he drawn out from the, from the parallel, from the metaphor? So how do we treat each other in a family dynamic? Well, we could, we could list lots of ways, but I think the key is that we're devoted to each other. Right? Family sticks together. That's, even the culture would, would value that and see that as a, a, a very prominent thing that families do. They're committed. They're not going to go anywhere, in other words. And obviously there's warmth in a family, there's care for each other, there's development together as a family, but I think the key thing that Paul's drawn out here is that warm commitment um, that we have for each other. 
And when it comes to the church, Paul's saying that we should treat each other like family, like we're related. And like we said, it really has to do with how we envision our connection with each other. So, can you change your biological family? I guess you kind of can, but it's not a trick question. No, you can't. You can't change your biology. You're stuck with your family. Um, In a similar way, we are stuck with each other in the church. God chose whom he was going to save in the wider church, you know, the, the, the broad church, out the big, you know, universal church, if you will. He chose whom he was going to save. And then he has ordained who's going to meet here, in this one, this little outpost of Timberlake Baptist. We're not the only church, but we are a church. And so the goal of all of these pastors, like he's telling these Romans of the Roman church, to treat each other like family. So I think it's a good parallel. We're not just saying just universal church. Yeah, we all treat all Christians like family, but especially and particularly so in, the, in this local church. He chose whom he was going to save, and, and then therefore when God sends us new folks, he sends them to us for a reason. He expects us to love them by treating them like close-knit family. Is that fair? Just teasing this out. And if you're newer here, if you guys are on the front end, guess what? There's a lot of fam left for you to meet, all right, in our church. So we're already beginning to see how this might change the way we think about Sundays. So you should think about Sundays like a family reunion, but you're new to the family. You've just been adopted in, okay? So now you've got to get to know some people. You've got to get to know your family. Your new relatives right here at Timberlake. So let's flesh this out a little bit more. And I want, to, I want to hear from you. Let's think through how seeing people as family might change how we interact with them. Okay? Let me give you a, just a, a few categories here. All right, the senior saint. For those of you who don't, I mean, I'm talking about the old people. Okay? If you come into church and you're thinking, all right, they're my spiritual family, how might that begin to change and Im- impact how we interact with them? Yeah, spiritual grandparents, yeah. So how would you treat a grandparent? Yeah. Yeah, there would be some respect there, for sure. Yep. What else? It's a good start. Yeah, you would, you would talk to them, right? Um, we, we wouldn't cloister in the college group, and just with our peers. We would begin to interact with them. We would see them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of getting along with the honor, learning from them. Yeah, I think all those things are there. I, my, my point is just very basic, kind of echoing what Mark said. I would just talk to them, you know, and, and get to know them. Don't, don't kind of cloister in our, in our, in our groups. It's, 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 and it's not bad. I'm not, I'm not um, critiquing, like, our friendships and the, the camaraderie we have as friends. That's great. Um, but when we're in these wider contexts, thinking of them as, as family members might change how we begin to interact with them. 
and I, I, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I think, think of, even think of these new people or people you don't know in, in the church as like long-lost family members that you just haven't met yet, right? And you're ready to meet them. So that's the reality. We're going to be in eternal fellowship with these people, so let's start now um, getting to know them. That's really Paul's point in, in Romans 13, or in 1 Corinthians 13. Love's going to last, Right? It's going to last. It's going to endure. Everything else is going to fade. So the senior saint, okay, how about the person outside your friend group? How would seeing them as family change the dynamic? Yeah. Another brother or sister you haven't gotten to know yet. So again, nothing wrong with friend groups. We all have them. They're good. You can't get to know everybody in the church in the same way. Um, but again, that person outside your group is not just kind of like, well, this is us, you know. They're like, no, that's your sibling. That's your, that's your brother or sister in Christ, and it would be good to talk to them. It would be good to get to know them and, and introduce yourself. Yeah. How about that needy person? How would seeing them as your spiritual brother or sister change the dynamic? And by the way, we're all the needy people at some point, so I don't have like three of you in mind. Seeking to fulfill needs, yeah, yep. Why do you ask me to define it? Just describe you. I was just thinking about how would I describe myself. Yeah. People that are difficult to love. Let's just put it that way. That could be a variety of things, right? And we all are that at different points. Somebody was saying something over here. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There's patience there. That's okay. I'm, I think just the, the, what I'm trying to get at is just this like baseline sort of familial commitment that we have that sort of changes the entire spectrum of how we think about these people, right? Um, our church family. The new person. What do you think? What's that? Welcome them. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Welcome them because they're, they're, they're part of us, right? They're part of our, of our assembly. They're part of our family. Now again, I'm just, just, just on this point, not saying we have the same level of relationships with everybody in the church. It's just not feasible. That's, not, and that's never a, an expectation that the New, Test, the New Testament gives us. But I think as long as we're, we're prioritizing getting to know people, um, I mean, there's still some sheep I haven't even met yet at TBC. Um, I work hard to, to do that, but it happens. Just because there's a, there's, a, there's a proximity of relationships, and I have certain certain demographic of the church that I'm obviously trying to shepherd. So um, I've got to prioritize you guys. All Paul's saying here is that biblical love is a kind of love that calls us, calls us to treat each other like family. And that's really the first example and kind of the, the preeminent example of how love is fleshed out in the, in the New Testament. And I started there because I think the rest of these examples kind of flow downstream from this first one. So as a family, we love when we believe the best about each other. That's the second way that love is fleshed out. Or a second way. We love in the church when we believe the best about each other. Now we see this 
in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of the paragraph, in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul says that love believes all things. It believes all things, is how the ESV translates that phrase. Now, it's probably better, if you're taking notes, it's probably better translated here that, that love always trusts. Okay? Believes all things is kind of like, what? Like, what, what, are they, what are they saying? What does that mean? I think it's better, all things is probably better translated as always. So love always believes, or it always trusts. And here, it, it means we believe the best. Because it's not talking about trusting God in this context. It's talking about how we interact with one another. So when it's talking about believing, it means we're believing the best about each other. So here's how one guy put it. He says, this does not mean that love is gullible. Do you hear that? does not mean that love is gullible or somehow unwise. But it does mean that it prefers to be generous in its openness and acceptance rather than suspicious or cynical. Okay, that was really good, so I'm going to read it again. It prefers, love prefers to be generous in its openness, generous in its openness and acceptance, instead of, rather than, suspicious or cynical. Now, I totally agree with that quote. Always believing that that doesn't mean that we're unwise in, in how we love. I mean, we're just kind of, we don't see anything and we just, we just love people undiscerningly. But it does mean that, that it actively works against always being suspicious of other people. So what does that sound like? It sounds like this. Well, I know he said that, but did he really mean that? Maybe you don't say it out loud, but in your heart. Yeah, you get that suspicion. Isn't he just trying to flatter me? Are they sincere? We don't believe the best when we assign motives to people. What do you think I mean by that? Assigning motives. What would that look like? You guys aren't used to me asking you questions on Thursday, are you? You're like, just give it to us, man. Just give it to us. Yeah. Yeah, you're assigning motives, meaning you're, 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 you're sitting there, whether it's mentally or verbally, saying, I know what your heart's doing. I know what it's thinking. Who's the only one that knows motives? God? Yeah. God's the only one that knows the true motives of the heart. We don't even know our own motives a lot of the time. When we assign motives, we claim to know the ins and outs of what's going on in another person's heart. Now, this becomes a, a, a challenge um, as we mature, especially as we're growing in discernment. Now, why do I say that? Because as we grow in our own lives, we're more able to trace out like those root issues in our own hearts. We're kind of able to get down to kind of those lies we're believing and and what our actions are really saying about our inner motives and those kinds of things. But we still have to be extremely careful here because even though we can often see things, and, and as it, this gets, so as we begin to triage our own hearts, we grow in discernment and we help other people, and that's a great gift to them, 
We have to be careful because we often can see things quicker than other people who are deceived can see them. And so it's very tempting to think we've nailed it and now we can assign that motive. Like, okay, I know what your heart's doing. We might have an idea of what their heart's doing, but we don't know for, for certain. So we have to be careful here. Even, even if we can see bad fruit, God is the only one who knows the heart. And we cross the line then when we become cynical of, of other people and sort of suspicious of their motives. That's not loving. And so we mentioned cynicism, so let's, let's stay there for a second. Okay? Sadly, cynicism is a very common attitude in the church and often toward the church, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? We've got to be so careful here. Because it's easy to kind of look out in wider evangelicalism, especially in a church like this that's discerning, and just be calling out everything at every turn. And it really be a spirit of cynicism and criticism in our hearts. Instead, what love would have us do is love would have us try to find things to affirm. It would have us try to find things to rejoice over in other people. It would try to find those areas of agreement. It does not mean we don't speak to the issues. doesn't mean we don't speak to the differences or we don't speak to the problems. We certainly do because love also rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13. It rejoices with the truth. It rejoices when truth is, is brought to bear. The most loving thing we can do is get truth to people. The most loving thing we can give them is to expose the lies that they're in but our heart posture must always be one of believing the best about people. Fighting that suspicion, even if we think we've bagged and tagged them. All right? We have to fight that suspicion. And I'm, I'm talking to myself here. This is one of the most convicting points for me. We've got to be generous toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes I think we're, we're tempted towards suspicion of other people in the church because we're afraid of being hurt. You know what I mean by that? You see that in your heart maybe, that kind of temptation? We try to preserve ourselves and we think, you know, Paul's telling me to believe the best about people, but sometimes the best isn't true and they hurt me, you know? You've probably had that experience, right? You're thinking like, surely they're not slandering me behind my back. I'm going to believe the best because they're saying they're not. And then you find out they are, you know, and it's painful. So you're saying, Paul, are you, are you telling me to believe the best? What if the best isn't true and they hurt me? What then? I think Paul would say, so what if you get hurt? So what? You're going to get hurt at some point. I'm not, I'm not saying this thinking that you're not ever going to get hurt. And I think you would say, do you think you've ever hurt Christ? Do you think you've hurt Christ more? Do you think somebody could hurt you more? And then I think you would say, and how does Christ treat you? How does he treat you when you hurt him? And the answer is he treats us infinitely better than we deserve. Perfect patience. And so there's the motive, right? There's the motive. So we're tempted towards suspicion because we're afraid of being hurt. 
Is there risk in believing the best about each other? Yes. Can we say it together? Yes. There is risk. But love is risky. Love is costly. It costs Christ his life. And it's worth it. Because it ultimately produces fruit. All right, so that's another practical way that love's fleshed out in the church. When we believe the best about each other, and we're striving to do that, rein in that criticism and skepticism in our hearts. And third, we love when we welcome each other. I think Tuck mentioned this earlier. When we welcome each other in the church. We'll tag on here, showing hospitality, greeting each other, all those kinds of things. We'll talk through those things. But that's, that's kind of what I mean. I'm tying several different themes together in this word for welcome. Again, it's a synthesis. It's my synthesis. I'm talking about how we receive each other, how we welcome each other into our lives, how we're open. All right? So how does the Bible describe this? What, what's, what's the language it uses? Well, it describes it practically. Paul is concerned about, and I love this, about how we greet each other. Do you ever think about that? Paul's concerned about how we greet each other. Listen, there's, there's multiple examples, but let's take Romans 16, 16 as, as one. In that text, Paul commands the church. It's a command. He commands the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. And he's kind of like the rep of all those churches he planted. He's saying, they all greet you, Roman church. He wants to make sure that there's this sort of fraternal bond between the churches. And it's symbolized by their willingness to to gladly and warmly greet each other. He says, with a holy kiss. Now some of you guys are getting excited about greeting the ladies with a holy kiss. Rain that in. Okay? Don't get any ideas. That would actually be an unholy kiss. All right? (laughs) Unless you're married. Okay? So what's Paul saying? Well, again, back to refer to point number one, he's bringing back the family imagery. He's bringing that back again. He's saying that we should greet each other with a kind of familial warmth. The idea of familial warmth. Now, depending on your family culture, I don't know if you guys kiss each other, but they did in this culture. Okay? And friends did too. So this is a friendly, familial Warmth, all right? It's an openness, a welcoming attitude. It communicates joy and eagerness to see one another. And I, I was meditating on this this week, and, and I was just thinking, like, Paul is very concerned about what we're projecting toward one another when we see each other. Think, think through that. Like, he commands them not just to greet each other, but how to do it. He spells that out. I find that fascinating. That he didn't just want them to greet each other, but even how in that particular social context. It would be like me saying, I want you to greet each other with hugs when you come in here. It's like, why are you telling us to do that? Like, what, are you really spelling that out for us to, that, with that kind of specificity? And Paul was for these, in this context. He's saying, I want you to be affectionate with one another. You know. So, 
hugs, affectionate shoulder grab, handshakes, just what, whatever is appropriate in our, in our cultural context, Paul would essentially say, do that. And so again, just kind of being challenged, I, on the spectrum, I'm less of a touchy-feely guy. You know, I'm not just probably going to walk up to you and hug you out of the blue. I'm not opposed to hugs. All right, let's just set the record straight. Not opposed to hugs. But I just sort of naturally shake hands because I don't want to like weird people out by going up to them and hugging them. But Paul is challenging me here to go above and beyond to tangibly demonstrate the warmth of my love. And that's something that happened to me this week. I got grabbed several times and hugged by people I barely knew at this pastor's (laughs) conference. I don't know if it did for me what it did for other people, but it definitely communicated, I am welcome here, they love me, they're glad to see me. Now, obviously, we've got to think this through for a number of obvious reasons. If you're going to hug, guys should probably hug guys. Ladies should probably hug ladies in our, in our college ministry, all right? Never thought I'd actually say that out loud in a sermon, but I did. <laughs> Don't misinterpret that. One of you got that joke. All right. <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody is, uh, you know, another... another just a piece of advice here. Somebody's wearing a mask, don't hug them. <laughs> that's free. Just give them the elbow. That's, that's the equivalent, all right, for the mask wearers. Don't, yeah, just let's respect their desire to, uh, to not, not be super close in this season, all right? So my point here is not to mandate a particular way you've got to greet each other. So, you know, but you got the green light. All right, dudes, if you want to come up and hug me, you can. All right, you've got to help me in this. But we, we want to be communicating a warmth and openness toward each other. All right? It doesn't just end with how we greet people, though. The Bible is clear that we welcome people into our very lives. Paul doesn't stop with just greeting. It's sort of like, you need a greeter's ministry, and you're done. We welcome people into our homes, into our hearts, and I love, I love how Paul models this in 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, 11, I think I have it on here. There was a group in Corinth who had pulled away in their affections from Paul. They had like, they'd pulled away from him. And Paul wanted them to know that his heart was wide open. That's the language he uses. was wide open toward them. In other words, Paul was not holding anything back from the people that were retreating from him and their affections for him. Paul's saying, in fact, I'm pressing in. I'm flinging the doors wide open, and I'm appealing to you for you to do the same for us because we love you. He says he opens wide his heart, his heart, the, the center of who he is. In the Bible, the heart is not just your emotions. It's everything. It's your internal person. It's kind of like if we were to combine our brain and our heart together. So you think will, emotions, how you make decisions, how you think, all of that. And one thing that Paul's saying, that is wide open toward you. He's not holding anything back. He wasn't afraid of getting hurt. This was his modus operandi. And it, just like his Lord, I mean, he's following, he's just a, he's just a faint flicker of, of, of the burning torch of Christ. He's just like his Lord. Another text, I don't know if I have this in here, First Thess, uh, 
I'm sorry, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. When he was sharing the gospel in this, this city of Thessalonica, Paul says, we shared with you not only the gospel of God, so we did that, we proclaimed the gospel, but we also gave you our own selves. We gave you ourselves because you had become very dear to us. 1 Thess 2.8. He didn't just give them the gospel, he gave them his heart, gave them his self, his life. So this means then, You've got to be willing to open yourselves up to people if you're going to love. You've got to be willing not just to ask questions and listen to people, but you have to be willing to share your heart with people. That is a practical outworking of love. Share your joys and your sorrows. Affirm your love. Articulate your fears, your hopes, your aspirations. We'll see in a moment that this sharing love is not just one-sided. It's not just that's all you do is talk. Okay, You definitely listen. But it, the point here is, is that you, you open yourself up. It is, a, it is a vulnerability. It loves others. It risks being hurt. It initiates relationships that might not reciprocate the way you want them to. It continues loving people that have neglected you. Now, this challenges us, doesn't it? Because sometimes we think it's spiritual just to be the one asking all the questions, you know, never revealing anything about ourselves. Because after all, we're the mature one in the group, right? I'm the RA, or whatever. This is the first thing that came to my mind. Sorry, are you RAs? <laughs> but that's not love. That's not love. You're still preserving, you're still self preserving for some reason. And I had this powerfully illustrated this week at the conference. One of my most esteemed professors in seminary was talking with a few of us after one of the sessions. It was at an alumni, the kind of the alumni fellowship. It was kind of a small, intimate setting. And then even in that intimate setting, there was like two or three of us that were gathered with this guy. We were, you know, chatting, catching up. And he was just patient, just tender, like going around, asking each one of us, like how ministry was going, what the burdens were in our lives, our families, our hearts and just drawing us out, understanding us. It was super sweet. All of our burdens and joys we've had this year, and just like a spiritual father would do that, he's just drawing us out. We kind of make it around the little, little mini circle, and then without, without one of us even asking, after we were done sharing, he just immediately shared about himself. He took about six or seven minutes, and he confessed, he confessed how he had been grappling with fear of the future. This is like a 60-plus-year-old man. And I adore this guy. He confessed how he had been grappling with fear of the future in a way that he had never grappled with it before. He was afraid of persecution. He was afraid of of sending out younger men like us into the lion's mouth as hostility increases. And he walked us through how another pastor on that staff, he had confessed that to that pastor and how that pastor had been shepherding him through that. And at one point, I just kind of asked him, like, have you written any of this stuff down? Like, this is, this is like gold. And he said, no. He's almost instantaneously said, no, it's too fresh. Meaning, I'm still processing this. This is one of my professors. This is one of the pastors. This is one of the men I most esteem. And he opened himself wide open to us, younger men. And Paul here says that that's how relationships are formed. That's how relationships are deepened. And this is an outworking of love. 
It's an outworking of his tender affection toward other believers. Paul was open. So this is all kind of all that point of just welcoming each other, living an open life before each other, okay? And we're even supposed to have this kind of radical openness, not just with each other, whom we know well. We're supposed to have it even with people that we don't know that well. You're saying, where do you see that? That's what the word hospitality means. The word means the love of strangers, literally. And Paul commands us to do it in Romans 12, 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Romans 12, 13. We typically think of hospitality in terms of opening our home up and feeding people. And that's a very good, definitely one way and one very effective way of being hospitable, loving the stranger, loving one another, welcoming, showing that you have an an openness to other people. But hospitality doesn't start with your home. Hospitality starts in your heart. It's an attitude of hospitality. It's an attitude of open love toward those we don't even know yet. And one way, just one way we try to, to cultivate this is by asking people into our home. One way we try to not just cultivate but demonstrate it is asking people over for lunch on Sunday. And we'll ask strangers. You know, many of you, those first time we met was at my house around the dinner table. And so people sometimes ask me if that's hard, if that's awkward, like how do you just go up to somebody and like invite them to your house? It does kind of catch people off guard initially. Um, Many of you are like, yep, it does. Uh, But it makes an impact, doesn't it? It makes an impact because it's, you recognize that it's a sacrifice, it's time, it's money, it's energy that we're putting into that. But Hopefully you perceive, you know, not just us, but whatever house you go to or whatever people that you interact with, it's a joyful privilege for us to do that. And relationally, it's a thrill. It's not awkward. Because again, it goes back to that point number one. You're a new family member that I don't know yet. And I get the chance to get to know you. I get the chance to open myself up to you to show you my weird idiosyncrasies. All right? But it's a new family relationship that we get to explore. So so let's take a second and think practically about this point of welcoming each other. And everything we said, right? So like from greeting to having like open hearts, vulnerable, transparent, and yet proactive in initiating those relationships, welcoming people into our lives. How can we do this? You know, you guys, most of you guys don't have homes. You might have a dorm room. You can still be welcoming in your dorm room. But you don't have homes. You're not doing lunches. So how can you welcome? How can you be hospitable? Here's some thoughts. We'll just try to motor through this here so we can get done. You can take initiative to introduce yourself to new people. I say this ad nauseum because we need it ad nauseum. You can take initiative to introduce yourself to new people. And you can take a genuine interest in getting to know them. I would challenge you to make it a goal to meet at least one new person or a person that, meet a person you don't know every time you come here. I'm not saying don't catch up with your friends. Catch up with your friends. That's part of body life. That's great. We love it. But meet one new person. Try to, try to identify one person you don't know every time you come to the service. And not just in Boundless. Definitely in Boundless. We want to know each other. But even outside of 
outside of this service, outside of our boundless group, and find out a little bit about them, maybe even what some of their joys and their burdens are, begin praying for those things. So that's just one simple way. You can take initiative to introduce yourself to new people and then just take an interest in them. That's a way to love. You can also do this. You can, you can perceive those folks who are sitting by themselves. You just kind of take a survey. You're like, that girl's alone. There's nobody there with her. Maybe friends are coming. doesn't matter. You can perceive those folks. And we've all been there. And you can invite those people to sit with you in Boundless Sunday services. Hey, I know I don't know you. My name's so-and-so. Why don't you come sit with me? I noticed you're by yourself. You got anybody coming with you? We'd love to, you know, we'd love to sit down with you. You don't have to ask them to your dorm room to feed them a meal. Um, but even that goes a long way. Here's another thought. You can introduce new people to other people in the church. Introduce them to people in Boundless. Introduce them to any networks that you have outside of the Boundless group. Now, why do you think I would say that? Why do you think that's significant? How many of you were new recently in the last six months? Okay. Is it easier? Tell us. Is it easier to go up and introduce yourself to an established group or to have someone from that established group come get you and say, hey, I want to introduce you to these people? What makes you feel more welcome? The second one, right? Obviously. We can do that. That's easy. That's easy to do. When you're new, you feel like an outsider, and you are to some degree. You don't know anybody. So a tremendous act of love is when you take that person and introduce them to several other people. And now that I have you all here together, it's just kind of like, let's the clay huddle, all right? Let's huddle up. If you're being, if somebody's like come up to you, one of your friends, and they have somebody new, and they're like, hey, this is so-and-so, don't stand there like a deer in the headlights. Hi. <laughs> and then go back to your conversation. Like, that, that's self-defeating, right? That defeats the purpose of what that other person who just stuck their neck out there is trying to do. They're trying to broaden that, other, that, that new person's network. So, don't be awkward. What's your name? Where are you from? What kinds of things do you like to do? What is your favorite color? I mean, I don't care. Just ask them, right? Like, that's all we, that's all we have to do. Ask them questions. Don't just stand there looking at them, all right? And again, I'm just, just trying, to, trying to map this out. I've seen this happen. And just put yourself, this is all an aspect of love, just put yourself in that new person's shoes. And think, what would be so nice for me if I was in that scenario? What did someone do for you when you came here? And just bend that out. Do that with other people. And then finally, as you have social networks, as you're developing those friendships within our church, you can feel free to include those people in those events. Okay? Don't worry about how it's going to change the friend group. It's okay. It's great if it changes the friend group. So bring them in. We want to be open and hospitable to one another. All right? We are, like, out of time. And I've got three. <laughs> What's that? You got plenty to work on already? Is that what people are saying? All right. Well, let me throw, let me throw one, a couple more at you. All right? Number four. 
I'm tired. I don't care. I'm tired than you are, all right? <laughs> all right, we love when we put up with each other. We love when we put up with each other, okay? So what? We're getting to know each other, right? We're doing this hospitable thing. We're meeting people. We're asking them what their favorite color is. And we're inevitably going to start to annoy each other. And you're like, not us. Yes. People are like, yes, we understand. I wish that weren't the case, but we would be sticking our heads in the sand if we ignored it. The Bible definitely doesn't ignore it. Love is fleshed out, says Paul, when we literally put up with each other. It's translated nicer than that. It's translated bear with one another. Um, in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Here it is, bearing with one another. This comes out again in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, when he says, love is patient. That's not just like a nicety. Why do we have to be patient? Not a trick question. Because we're all a work in progress, right? There's things to be patient about, right? There's sin. There's irritants, okay? Love is patient. Love is kind. Let me, let me just put some, let me give you some definitions. Love is patient. Love endures injuries without retaliation. That's what that means. Love is patient. Love endures injuries without retaliating. How about this one? Love is kind. Love is quick to pay back in kindness what it received in hurt. Do you hear that? Love is quick to pay back in kindness what it received in hurt. That's what love is patient and love is kind means. And then down, on, down in verse 5, love is not irritable. Whoa! It's not irritable. It's not easily angered. It's not touchy. It's not, it doesn't have this blistery temper that's barely hidden beneath the surface of a, of a respectable facade, right? That's the way one author put it. Just waiting for an offense. That's not love. Love's not irritable. So why do we get irritated with each other? Because we're different, right? Because we're idiosyncratic. What does that mean? It means we're quirky. Because we have weaknesses. And because we sin against each other. That's why we get irritated. But what's the common denominator of irritation? We think they're messing up our life in some way. Right? That this thing they do, that's not good for me. That's not good. So stop. Because I'm irritated, right? Like, stop doing that thing. It's complicating my life. It's inconveniencing me. Now, we certainly may need to talk that thing through. Okay, I'm not saying we just ignore. But when we are irritated, something is happening. It's showing us that we are not trusting that God has our best in mind in that moment. We're saying we think this person's bad for us right now. This is bad. Is that true? No, it might be unpleasant. It might be very painful, whatever they're doing in that moment. But is this bad for you? Think about what that statement implies. God's made a mistake. 
God's made a mistake in ordaining this scenario. This person, this opportunity, this is not bad for you. This is an opportunity for you to grow in love. You're like, no, don't say that. It's an opportunity for you to trust God and bend out his love toward them. Remember a few weeks ago when I said we've got to get on God's agenda for our lives? Because if we don't, and his agenda is to make us into loving people, if we don't do that, we're going to be constantly discontent. Because guess what? Guess how we grow? Like this. This is an opportunity to love. It's an opportunity to encourage and edify other people. It's an opportunity to be an example to those that are watching you. It's an example to stimulate them to love and good works from your example. It's far from the worst thing for you, even though it's inconvenient. Even though it might even rip your heart out at times. According to God, all things work together for what? For good. So he makes no mistakes. And this is, again, gets at it in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, or better, love always bears up. It's a better way to translate that. Love endures all things, or better, it always endures. So hear those things in this context. It always bears up. It always endures. You might be tempted to think, how can I do that? How? That's impossible. And you're right. It is impossible apart from Christ. But what do I mean when, when, we, when we say that, that it's impossible apart from Christ? We mean apart from experiencing and drawing upon his love for us. Apart from that, we can't do it. We cannot overcome irritation. We can't be kind or bear up with the weaknesses of others in any kind of genuine way without drawing on him. But when we know how weak we are, when we know, and this is showing us, right, these irritants, when we know how weak we are, when we, when we know how astoundingly irritating we should be to Christ, when we remember how frequently we offend Him, and then we realize how tenderly He treats us, how perfect in kindness He is toward us, how infinitely patient He is, we're strengthened to be patient. Do you realize that Christ is and never will be sinfully exasperated toward you? He has never been and never will be sinfully exasperated with you. Christ has never once huffed at you. He's never once rolled His eyes in sinful frustration toward you. He has never once raised His voice in sinful anger toward you. He has perfect patience toward you. That does not mean He's never come after you in discipline. Because that's an evidence of His love for you. And that might feel fierce, right? But that that fierce discipline has has been when we've been hard-headed and rebellious. But that even the discipline is motivated by His tender and eternal love for us. It's not, it doesn't, mitigate his patience in any way. When he rebukes us, it's in perfect harmony with his compassion and patience. And that patience toward us is what we draw on to be patient toward others, to bend that out to other people. And it ups the ante when we realize that he expects us to bend out what he's shown to us. Right? Imagine like looking at Jesus and saying, I can't do this. 
and he's slaughtered for you. And he said, no, you can, because look how I love you. He wants us to love. It's not optional. He's not going to let us off the hook for our impatience and our irritability. When we're, ir- when we're irritable with other I'm meaning like we're going on in unrepentance, like I can never overcome this. This is, this is something I'm going to go on doing without acknowledging it. He will not let his children continue in that because he's, he's changing us. He wants us to love. But what happens when they sin against me? When it feels like I can't put up with them anymore because of what they've done? Well, Paul tells us that love also manifests itself when we forgive each other. When we forgive each other. He says in Colossians 3.13, if one has a complaint against another, I love how just basic that is. One has a complaint against another, implies we will, that we forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you hear that? Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Paul's saying we can't not forgive. Forgiving is an outworking of love. When someone sins against us, we can't just cover it in love and then move forward. We, when we can't do that, we need to go to them humbly with the desire to reconcile. We've got to talk about what they did, seek to understand them, yeah. We've got to be willing to extend forgiveness or willing to ask for it, depending on what side of that equation we're on. Now, that's a topic in and of itself. We're not going to get into the details of it, all right? How to give and receive forgiveness. Here, I just want to show you the practical outworking between forgiveness and love. And, and, and Paul says, and this is important, in 1 Corinthians 13.5, that love is not resentful. This is the back end. Love is not resentful. It doesn't keep, in other words, it doesn't keep a mental record of wrongs. One author says it like this, it doesn't keep a private file of personal grievances that can be consulted and nursed whenever there is a possibility of some new slight. Resentment is so common in the church, it can often last for years brewing under the surface. So how does that happen? Here's how it happens. Somebody sins against you, and you don't forgive them. That's the, that's the recipe for resentment. Somebody sins against you, they hurt you, and you don't forgive them. You get hurt, you stay hurt, you nurse that hurt, you rehearse that hurt, you start telling other people about that hurt, you grumble about that hurt, you allow that hurt to justify other sins, like why you won't go to church or serve or whatever. That is resentment. And it's the opposite of love. And it happens when you don't forgive. So how do you know if resentment sometimes spilling out of your life? What might be a low-hanging fruit? be a lot of things, but I'll give you one common one. Biting sarcasm. Biting sarcasm. Now, I'm not talking about the jovial joking that we do with each other and it's, you know, might go overboard at times, but it's all good natured, right? This is what happens when we, it's a substitute for confrontation. You know what I mean? It's like we throw those zingers in there instead of actually confronting. So, well, what should we do is we should talk to them with the goal of reconciliation, but we pretend that we're not hurt. You know, we're just like, oh, I'm not hurt. I'm just zinging these sarcastic comments to this person. But we really are hurt, and one of the telltale signs is when you start tearing that person down, either to their face in sarcasm or behind their back in gossip. So that's how we know that, there's, that we need to forgive 
We need to love each other by forgiving. Paul says love does not resent. Love is love fleshed out seeks forgiveness and reconciliation. He says it differently in verse 13 in uh, 1 Corinthians 13:7. He says love hopes all things or love always hopes. And he means that love is always hopeful that the person who offended you can change. Love is always hopeful for reconciliation. One author put it like this. He says love hopes for the best even when disappointed by repeated personal abuse. Love is always ready to give an offender a second chance. So good. Hard, but so good. So just think this through. Is there anybody you need to forgive? Is there any bitterness that's festering that you should deal with? That's an easy way to love the body. Jesus expects us to do this, and we would love to help you walk through that process because it can be complicated sometimes. All right? I'm just going to give you these. All right? We love each other. Also, when we build each other up in truth. This is probably one of the more important ones, but suffice it to say that the most loving thing we can do for people is to give them truth. The most loving thing we can do is, with the right motive, be willing to risk our reputations and our friendship for the sake of the truth. That is the most loving thing we can do. It's unloving to let someone stay in deception. If we can, I mean, we can't open their eyes. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but, but we can bring the truth to bear. So love, in, in this context, you know, even believers are, are deceived at times, and so Paul tells each other that we, we must be truthful with each other in Ephesians 4.25. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, our, our main, one of our main pastors says that love rejoices with the truth. So what does that look like? Um, it can look like a lot of things. But one of the things I would, I would really encourage you in is, especially if you're younger in the faith, like how could, you, how could you build each other up with truth? Here's some basic ways. You can be a bridge back to the church. What do I mean by that? I mean that you can be a positive influence toward the, the truth center. Like where truth's happening, truth's being taught. Paul calls the church the pillar and support of the truth. It's where it's going to be publicized, explained, applied, modeled. So even if you're a young believer and you're not really sure how to navigate, like what does this look like to begin to counsel and build up and disciple and do these kinds of things with truth, you can be a conduit to get people here. To get, or, or any healthy church, it doesn't have to be our church, any healthy church. You can connect your friends with people who can actually help them. You can initiate conversations with others about the sermon that you just heard. You can learn to ask good questions that are thought-provoking. I'll give you some. You ready? If, it's, if, if you just heard something that we need to do, you can think things like, okay, what makes this command difficult to obey? What are some of the hindrances? What would happen if my life, in, in my life if I did obey this? What are some dangers if I don't obey this? Okay, if it's like a truth or some reality that we need to have some motivation, okay, why is this thing so important for our lives? What are some lies in this area that we're tempted to believe instead of, of, of this? And then, obviously, what are some practical ways that we might put this message into practice, what we just heard? 
you can initiate those kinds of conversations in your friend groups. And that would be a way to build each other, base, baseline, baseline way to begin building each other up in the truth. And by the way, these are some of the same questions I ask from my own heart and in my preaching. So it's nothing, nothing new, all right? All right, number seven, last one. We love each other in the church when we limit our freedoms for each other's sake. When we limit our freedoms for each other's sake. First Corinthians 13 says that um, love does not insist on its own way. I think it's there in verse 5. Yep. Love does not insist on its own way. And literally, it does not, here's, here's a way we could translate this. Love does not seek the things of himself. Love does not seek the things of himself. Some translations will say it's not self-serving. But I, I like this. I, I, I like this extended definition. He says, love does not merely seek that which does not belong to it. It obviously doesn't do that. But love is prepared to give up for the sake of others what it is entitled to. Hear that? Love is willing to give up for the sake of others even what it is entitled to. That's what love does. You'd be totally legitimate to do that thing. And you're saying, I'm going to give that thing up because that's going to bless this person. It's going to bring benefit to this. Ways that you guys already do this, I'm going to affirm, is you park far away to give the closer spots to people at the church. Is it sinful to park right in front of the church building? I hope not. That's what I do. <laughs> but I get here way earlier than you every Sunday, so I'm carting stuff in and out. But no, it's not sinful to park toward the front. But what are you doing? You're, you're preferring other people by parking further away. You're denying yourself. You're limiting your freedom for the sake of other people. Coming to the 8 a.m. service so others can come to the 1030. There's nothing inherently spiritual about one of the other services, about the 8 a.m., but you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm free to come to the 1030, and you are. I love, it, love you at the 1030. But you're saying, okay, I'm going I'm to prefer the saints, and I'm going to go to the 8 a.m. service. I'm going to limit my freedom. Uh, one common way we do this as pastors, we don't drink alcohol. Is alcohol bad? Well, drunkenness is condemned in Scripture, but not alcohol. If you're an LU student, yes, it's sin for you to drink. If you're underage... Yes, it's sin for you to drink anything, right? But no, drinking in and of itself, those two limitations, it's not sinful. There's no sin in that. So why do we limit ourselves? We do it for the sake of the sheep here, for weak consciences, for people that it might destroy their consciences if they see their pastor drinking alcohol. So we don't, we don't do that. Just, again, just basic things, ways that, ways that this can happen. So, again, we've got to wrap up here. I'm way over time, so I'm not... I'm just blaming on being tired. Honorable mentions would be like praying for one another, serving each other, shouldering each other's burdens, empathizing with each other is a big one, right? So you think about like rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. I'm just rambling now. The back end of that is being envious and jealous. 
I wanted to talk about that one, but I had to nix it. Envious and jealous of other people is the back end of, of, of not empathizing, or of, of, of empathy. So what do you do with this sermon, okay? Pick one area that was impactful for you and think about it this week and think through your areas of, of life. So think about boundless, think about church, think about your roommates or your family scenario. Um, one of these that kind of rang your bell and were like, yeah, that's, that's exciting or that's convicting or yeah, that's encouraging, I want to pursue that more. Pick one of them and think through, okay, what's the one step I could take in this area to become more like Jesus um, in loving the saints? Is that fair? All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. None of this would be possible without you redeeming us, opening our eyes to see what great sinners we are and what a great Savior you are. And that is the, the fuel, the Spirit is the power that we have to, to begin to do these things. You're enabling us to do them. You have far more uh, vested interest in making us lovers of others than we even have. And so we just rejoice in that. You're, you're so committed to our highest good. And even if we don't see it now, Lord, forgive us for complaining, for not aligning ourselves with your, your agenda, and just give us eyes to see um, the potential that we could have in this life um, if we learn to deny ourselves, trust you, and love like we've been loved. Thank you for this group. Thank you for the fruit that you're producing. And I pray that we would excel still more um, in this area. In Jesus' name, amen.